Chris James. Tonight I am going to be talking about the man behind the curtain. Actually, probably not a man. It could be men and women. Don't forget to swing by the Pan American Courts and pick up your next meal at the 1755 Barbecue. We tried the LPRS burgers the other night and wow were they good. Just look for the bright red food trailer with the enticing aromas coming from it. Your lips and your stomach will thank you. As we move through life, things that are common knowledge become uncommon. Things like Watergate become things the old folks refer to but have no relevance to the young. What a lot of folks don't know is just about all the major players involved in Watergate break-in were also involved in Dallas in one way or another back in 1963. Something for another show. The reference to the man behind the curtain comes from the Wizard of Oz. When Dorothy is talking to the all-powerful Oz, a Toto spots a guy behind the curtain who's actually running the show. Who really runs the world? Every so often we get together and we elect people to run our country so we don't have to be bothered with all the little details. How do we pick these people? I go by what the person has done in the past. How did this person run his or her life before asking us to hire them to run our country? Think about it this way. We, you, me, everybody in this country, own a multi-million dollar corporation called the United States of America. A bunch of folks come along and they tell us they know what we need in our lives and if we will vote for them, or hire them, they will do their best to make our lives better. A lot of people vote for whoever's running based on which party they belong to. Never mind if that person has a track record that looks like something more associated with a crime family. It's all about supporting that party. George Washington's farewell address is often remembered for its warning against hyperpartisanship. The alternate domination of one faction over another, sharpened by the spirit of revenge natural to party dissension, which in different ages and countries has perpetrated the most horrid enormities, is itself a frightful despotism. They talked weird back then. John Adams, Washington's successor, similarly worried that a division of the Republic into two great parties is to be dreaded as the great political evil. 
Yet today, we still have two main parties who are more concerned with staying in power at any cost. The cost is always passed on to us, the taxpayers. Both parties will lie, cheat, and steal in order to stay in power. Here in the U.S., we have laws that say you can't say things in advertising unless they're true. If a company says, if you'll eat Phil Boyd's studge, you'll lose weight. Anybody catch the H.H. Monroe reference? Anyway, if a company makes a claim, they must back it up. The folks who pass these laws, we must say that we must abide by them. But they also put a clause in that law that said it did not apply to politicians. Politicians can say anything about themselves and their opponents with zero evidence. They write the laws so they get to disobey them. A lot of folks are confused as to why we have three branches of government and what they do. A lot of our politicians are confused about it as well. The President of the United States, or POTUS, functions as the head of the United States federal government. The President directly oversees all agencies of the executive branch of government and is considered the commander-in-chief of all branches of the United States Armed Forces. The President is the CEO of our corporation. If he screws up making bad ideas, then we get stuck with the bill. Uh, think about this as you head to the voting place. Do you want your company run by some guy who can't balance their own checkbook? There are a lot of politicians who have trouble running their own lives, yet people want them to run our country, which means they're going to be running our lives. The president can only hold office for 10 years. A half-term if the vice president should be elevated to the front office, and two elected terms in office. This was done once FDR had refused to stop running for president. He was under the assumption that he had all the answers. Maybe he did. We did win World War II. But I kind of get the impression we would have won World War II with or without him. The United States Supreme Court hears and decides appeals from federal circuit courts and from state courts that involve federal law. It also decides constitutional challenges to actions by the legislative and executive branches. The Supremes are appointed for life so that whichever political party is in power, they can't just fire everybody they disagree with. On hindsight, this might not be such a good idea. We are seeing a few judges today trying to make decisions who might just need to retire. If you can't stay awake during a photo shoot, maybe it's time to go to bed and stay there. Maybe the Supremes should be appointed for 20 or 30 years. Let's face it, we're all getting older and not everybody's getting wiser. The Supreme Court 
is supposed to make all of their decisions based on the Constitution, not based on how it feels or what makes people happy. If a law is not constitutional, it's not supposed to be on the books. However, too many people today go by, oh, it feels good to change this law, despite the fact that it may or may not be constitutional. Lastly, we have Congress. You know what the opposite of progress is? Congress. A lot of people refer to these folks as being senators and congressmen. Oh boy, do we need civics classes. Congress is made up of two groups, the Senate and the House of Representatives. They're all congressmen. Boy, howdy, do you get evil looks if you call a senator a congressman. But let's face it, they are. The House of Representatives is supposed to be our voice in Washington. Our spokesman, if you will. We elect these folks to go to Washington and tell the country what we want them to say. It takes about two days for our representatives to wind up pulling the party line and forgetting all about us. Up until it's time for the next election. Then they're all over the place telling us, Oh, look, didn't I do such a great job last time? The big boys in Washington tell our representatives how to vote. We, the people, can pound sand for all the good our representation is getting. We pay these folks about $180,000 a year. Plus, once they retire, they continue getting about $140,000 for the rest of their life. Guess who's paying the bill? Yes, we the people are shelling out $140,000 for each and every retired member of Congress. What does your retirement look like? Is it that good? Is it that plush? Is it that full of nice little benefits? Probably not. Uh, politicians were not given retirement pay back when the Founding Fathers set things up. They were expected to leave office and continue working as a citizen. After World War II, in order to get the old folks out of office, they were offered a retirement policy so they'd leave and let some new folks in to help rebuild the planet. Today, it kind of seems like once they get into Washington, you can't get them out of there, no matter how much bug spray you use. What really makes this so bad is they have been receiving huge gifts, I would call them bribes, from special interest groups the whole time while in office. Most congressmen receive a gift of around $480,000 every year from just big pharmaceutical companies. Haven't you ever wondered how so many people become millionaires while working for us? Sure the heck isn't that $180,000 we're paying them. The Senate was not supposed to have been elected by our vote. When the Founding Fathers put together our government, they said that the states needed a voice in Washington as well as the people. The state legislators would appoint the senators. 
This way, should some senator get out of line, the state legislators could simply recall them and fire them. The worst president in the history of our country changed our way of doing things. Woodrow Wilson wanted to pass some really bizarre laws giving Washington more power by taking it away from the states. In 1913, right after getting into office, Wilson got the Congress, which was controlled by his party, to change the Constitution by adding the 17th Amendment. This switched the power of the states to the power of Washington. Wilson also segregated the military and the civil service far more than they had ever been before he was elected. He spearheaded the Treaty of Versailles, which led to Hitler in World War II. Wilson also gave us income tax as well as the Federal Reserve. I'm getting a bit off track here, aren't I? Where did things go wrong? It probably happened thousands of years ago when some guy decided that instead of him hunting and gathering, he'd sit back and tell others to go hunt him some dinner and gather him some comfy furniture. He would sit there on his throne and tell other people to bring him food. At one time, the guy who wanted to be king had to be the biggest and baddest guy in his area. He literally had to fight his way into power. People liked to be on the winning team, so this would-be king would accumulate followers. Once he'd killed everybody in his way, his followers would see it to it that nobody snuck up behind the throne to do something nasty. How it became popular to marry inside the same family is just plain weird. All those royals in Europe were all cousins. It was required that they marry their own relatives in order to keep the bloodline pure. This led to all kinds of weird birth defects. That's also the subject for a different show. Power tends to corrupt, and total power corrupts totally. A king could have someone killed just because. Well, this led to folks getting together to plan how to get rid of the king and put somebody else in there that they could control. Up until the 1700s, the royals kind of ran the world, and the rest of the people were expected to work, pay their taxes, and not make any trouble. So who's the most popular target for today? Well, let's begin with everybody's favorite secret society, the Freemasons. Since the middle of the 19th century, Masonic historians have been looking for the origins of the organization in a series of documents they call the Old Charges that date back to about 1425. The Masons say they are directly related to the builders of Solomon's Temple, and one man in particular, Hiram Abath. There's no written record that shows this connection, but that doesn't really matter. They believe there's a connection. The Masons were only the end result of a far different secret organization. 
1129, a small group of knights showed up in Jerusalem and said they were there to protect pilgrims on their way to the city. There were only nine of them, but they claimed this was a mission from God. They were allowed to bivouac in the remains of Solomon's temple. The temple had been sacked in 70 AD, and nobody had managed to fix the place up since. For over a thousand years, nobody ever tried to fix the place. Talk about procrastination. Well, the knights moved in and made the best of their situation. And they dug. They dug around under the temple looking for secrets unknown. The movies always portray the Templars as hating the Muslims. Well, this isn't really true. In around 1130, an imam arrived wishing to pray in the old abandoned temple. The knights gathered up all their gear and all their horses and they went out to the street so they could allow this man to perform his ceremony alone. Once he had finished and moved on, the knights gathered up all their gear and moved back into the temple. If they were willing to do that much for some imam who was just traveling through the area, what makes people think that they hated these folks? They didn't really hate them. There were many battles fought between Christians and Muslims where half of the Christian army was made up of Muslims. There were many occasions where some Muslim leader had gone to a Christian leader and said, Hey, look, if you and your troops will band up with me and my troops and we can go over to this village or this city over here and we can knock that guy out of power and then we'll divvy up the spoils between us. It wasn't about religion. Most of it was about money. Get as much land as they could get their hands on. Well, as they're digging underneath the temple, the Templars must have found what they were looking for because soon the Knights were the most powerful group in all of Europe and of the Middle East. They paid no taxes to any king and they could come and go as they pleased. On the battlefield, the knights were the first ones into the fray and the last to leave. Surrender was not allowed. In battle, if one side discovered they couldn't go on and it was policy to drop your weapons and give up, the knights and the royals would be taken into custody and then ransomed back to their home countries. You've heard the term, a king's ransom. Oh, this was common practice. The serfs and the folks that didn't have anybody to pay for their release would become slaves to the winning side. It cost a lot of money to travel with all your followers. Kings and nobles would travel with dozens, sometimes hundreds of followers. They carried all the things needed to set up camp and feed everyone. Huge chests filled with gold and silver were needed to pay for all the food, lodging, tolls in order to pass through the different countries. This led to a lot of folks being robbed as they traveled through inhospitable regions. The Knights Templar would put your money in a safe place and give you an encrypted note saying you had so much money in their bank. When you arrived at your destination, you could exchange this note for your money. 
they did charge rent on keeping your money with them. Some folks needed to borrow money to go from place to place, starting wars and killing people. It was against the law to loan money at interest. This was known as usury. The Templars would loan money. The amount of money you borrowed had an extra little amount added at the front, which was in fact interest. It was all in how you wrote things out. Since everything was in code, nobody knew they were charging interest in violation of the law. As with any secret society, rumors began to spread. Nastiness is being undertaken behind closed doors. Any time you have a worldwide organization with super-secret manifestations, somebody is going to make things up. People just hate not knowing, so if you won't tell them, they'll come up with their own stories. The Templars had just about every country in Europe in their debt. King Philip of France was far in debt. He was never going to pay his loans off. As a way of getting out of debt without having to work too hard, the king filed charges against the Templars, accusing them of all the things people thought they might be doing. In those days, if you accused somebody of a crime and they were found guilty, you got to keep a percentage of their property. At dawn, Friday the 13th of October 1307, a date that is sometimes linked with the origins of Friday the 13th, King Philip IV ordered de Molay and scores of other French Templars to be simultaneously arrested. Then came the real nastiness. Tortures and executions galore. This was before TV, so folks needed some form of entertainment. Public executions were considered quite the show, and folks would come from all around to watch. Nobody was selling t-shirts yet, but they would if they could. None of the Templars' treasure was ever found. Plus, the Templars were arrested in France, but not in Germany or several other countries. Some kings tried. The orders went out saying the knights were to be brought to the castle. Well, they showed up dressed for battle and fully armed. They were not willing to be treated to the ruling classes less than hospitable accommodations down in the local dungeon. Once the king had said his peace, the knights simply left. But soon the order had vanished from sight. They were still around, they were just using different names. The Freemasons showed up just about a hundred years after the order had disappeared. George Washington was a Mason as well as a lot of his generals. The Declaration of Independence was signed by several Masons as well. Leading up to the Civil War, the country had two distinct forms of Masonic lodges, the Masons of the North and the Masons of the South. The Supreme Council of Southern Jurisdiction was founded in Charleston, South Carolina in 1801. This council was in charge of the goings-on in the states in the southern half of the country. Surprisingly, or 
maybe not. The states and territories in the southern jurisdiction are also the states of the Confederacy. The nation was split along the border between the two jurisdictions of the Freemasons. This strikes me as just a bit odd, but then who knows for sure. One branch of the Freemasons, the Prince Hall Masons, played a role in beginning and then sustaining the Underground Railroad. They were against slavery and felt it was their duty to help sneak runaway slaves to freedom. A lot of people don't realize that a lot of freed slaves have their freedom because of the Masons. On the other hand, there were the Knights of the Golden Circle. They had no qualms as far as keeping slaves and felt it was their duty to do anything, including assassinations, to keep the southern states in power. A John Wilkes Booth is thought to have been either a member or a sympathizer with the Knights of the Golden Circle, who were in Baltimore at that time. Jesse James is also reputed to have been a member, either during the war or shortly thereafter. Today, Masons are in just about every town and city in the U.S., and stories of everything from black magic to devil worship are dropped at their doorstep on a regular basis. That's what happens when you have so many secrets. Masons aren't bad people. I've known several Masons over the years. And by and far, they are some of the nicest folks I've ever met. They say Masons make a good man even better. However, it seems the higher up in the organization you go, the more secretive and unusual they get. No, Masons aren't devil worshippers, but that doesn't mean there aren't a few devil worshippers in high and mighty places in their organization. The Illuminati is a name given to several groups, both real and fictitious. Historically, the name usually refers to the Bavarian Illuminati, an Enlightenment-era society founded in May 1, 1776. The society's goals were to oppose superstition and religious influence over public life and abuses of state power. Back then, the church was considered to be just as much, if not more, in charge of everything. Kings were crowned by bishops and cardinals. It was just as much a religious event as a political gathering. The Masons, as said, they wanted to create a separation of church and state. Seeing as they were a secret society, we only have their word as to what they had planned for the rest of the world. The order of the day, they wrote in their general statutes, is to put an end to the machinations of the purveyors of injustice, to control them without dominating them. Mm. Yes, like I said, they spoke funny back then. The name implies the members were illuminated or advanced in the ways of higher thought. They likened themselves to be smarter and therefore in a much better situation when it came to guiding the world on its path. The path just happened to be the best path for the Illuminati and not necessarily the best one for the rest of the planet. <clears throat> 
I will agree that smartest people should be allowed to put forth possible ideas as to which way society should advance, but that doesn't mean let them make all the decisions. At just about any time a secret group begins steering things, they will benefit the most and usually at the expense of everyone else. As soon as it was discovered there were secret societies forming all over Europe, the Pope sent out decrees stating these secret societies were a danger to the world. They were also a danger to the ruling class most of all. Kings got busy passing laws against any secret societies forming in their countries. Well, these laws didn't really dissuade folks from joining. People who were tired of being told how to think and believe were quick to seek out any organization that said they would make life better. The organization only had about 25 members in 1776. The folks say they were responsible for both the American Revolution as well as the French Revolution. With so few members, this would have been nearly impossible. <clears throat> I've just noticed I don't have my notes for my commercials. So just a quick saying, don't forget to buy your coffee at the Organic Man Coffee Trike on McPherson. Check out some of the books at the... Phoenix Bookstore on Victoria Street. Get your eyes checked at the Optica del Norte right across the street from the Embassy Suites. And if your skin looks like something Quasimote would be proud of, maybe you should talk to my wife about getting a free skin care class. You can contact her at 956-723-3019. And as soon as I'm done recording the show, I'm going to look for my notes again. Adam Weissop, the founder of the Illuminati, actually had wanted to join the Masons, but they wouldn't let him in. So, he simply created his own secret society based on Masonic ideas. The trouble there was he only had the ideas that he could figure out listening to other people say what the Masons did. Seeing as they were a secret society, nobody would tell him how they functioned. So, he just kind of made up things as he went. Once his little group had become a big group, the Masons thought maybe this bunch should become a part of their bigger group. The Illuminati were taken into the Masons in 1779. Once the two groups were one, the Illuminati began taking over. They only seized power in three lodges. The majority of the Masonic lodges kept their distance from this upstart society. The Illuminati today is said to be linked directly to the original organization. Still, we have only their word for this. For all we know, anybody can begin calling themselves the Illuminati, and we would be no wiser as to where they had come from or what their ideas were. They are often aligned to conspiracy that want to control the world by masterminding events and planting agents in government and corporations in order to gain political power and influence and to establish the new world order. How many times have you heard a politician talk about 
the new world order and how it would be a good thing. Uh, speaking of planting agents, Adolf Hitler worked for the secret police and he was actually sent to the Nazi party to find out what they were doing and then report back to the authorities. Once he'd attended a few meetings, Hitler decided they had the right idea and he worked his way to the top of the party. Joseph Stalin was also a member of the secret police in Russia. He had been sent to keep tabs on Lenin and Trotsky, so they didn't get big and powerful. When Joe realized the Bolsheviks were going to win, he switched his allegiances so he would come out on the winning side. And he also managed to claw his way to the top. We all know how that worked out in both cases. Not being content with becoming enormously wealthy and powerful, the members of both the Freemasons and the Illuminati began to set their sights on higher things. They believed the world would be a better place if everybody thought along the same lines. Once again, a new world order. Not every puppet master is a member of a secret society. Some are members of huge families, like the Rothschild family, the most wealthy family on the planet. 1760, Mayor Amschel Rothschild was in the employ of the German landgraves of Hesse Castle in Frankfurt. His specialty was finance. Rothschild managed to use his position working for the ruler to invest some of his own money and some he had borrowed from his boss without his boss knowing he was borrowing it. This allowed Rothschild to amass a huge fortune. This he passed on to his family. This wealth was used to establish an international banking family through his five sons, who established themselves in London, Paris, Frankfurt, Vienna, and Naples, all of the biggest cities in the world back then. Yes, the name is Jewish, but I doubt anyone in the family has set foot inside a synagogue in decades. They are Jewish in name and ancestry, but they hold none of the values or the faith of their forebearers. A legend among the Rothschild family is one Nathan Mayer Rothschild, who made absolute fortune in the aftermath of the Battle of Waterloo. With the Rothschilds orchestrating the British war efforts in the Napoleonic War, Remember, the five brothers had set up a giant network of contacts, which included couriers, shippers, and secret agents. The banking family had offices in England, loaning money to the British to fight Napoleon, and they had offices in Paris, loaning money to Napoleon to fight the British. The Battle of Waterloo, fought near Brussels, Belgium, had been raging, and the Napoleon appeared to be on the upside of the battle. News had reached London that Waterloo would be lost. If Napoleon won, he would more than likely be running into England next. This would put the folks there in a bad place financially. 
What nobody knew was that British reinforcements had arrived and eventually the British army came out of the battle as the victors. Now, one of these Rothschild agents came into play. His job was to provide Nathan Mayer Rothschild with news before anybody else knew. The agent set about making his way back to London, paying a ton of money to get a boat over the choppy waters from Ostend, Belgium. The agent reached London well before any other news could cross the English Channel. The legend states that Nathan Mayer went to the London Stock Exchange and in a bid to cause prices to crash, he sold all of his government bonds. Everybody else immediately followed suit, believing that the Battle of Waterloo had been lost. All those government stocks would be worthless, so sell them as fast as you could. At the very last minute, Nathan Mayer then bought all the government bonds he could at a very low price. People just wanted to get rid of those things, so he gobbled them up. When news finally broke of Britain's victory at Waterloo, the prices of these bonds suddenly skyrocketed, resulting in immense profits for Rothschild dynasty. If you buy stocks at a dollar apiece and they suddenly become worth $10 in just minutes, your money will become 10 times the value. Do this with millions of dollars and, well, you're the winner. You remember the movie Trading Places where Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd used their prior knowledge to sell and then buy back stocks and make a killing? This was just what Rothschild did in London. Today it's called insider training and you can go to jail for it. That is, if you're not super rich and powerful and have lots of friends in high places. It is well known among those who have seriously studied the subject of war that war is very expensive, not just manpower, but in money. Special interest groups who have secret society connections and international bankers have found that war is beneficial. Well, it's beneficial to them. The bigger the war, the bigger the profits. And if you can back both sides of the conflict, well, no matter who wins or loses, you're still going to come out on top. Britain ruled the world <clears throat> by its navy. And the navy ran on coal. A coal-powered battleship was considered the best you could get, right up until something called oil began to show up. The people of Britain weren't keen on the idea of rebuilding their entire fleet. Coal was readily available from Wales. Where were they going to get all that oil, and why would they want to rebuild their entire fleet? They already ruled the world. Well, Germany was beginning to build up its world dominance, and the thing that got Britain's attention was when Kaiser Wilhelm sent a battleship into Agadar in 1911. This was considered an affront to the British Empire, and something had to be done about it. Britain immediately began to rebuild their navy to keep those Germans in their place, their place being anywhere Britain wasn't. Uh, keep in mind that the Rothschilds had giant banks in both Britain and Germany. 
Governments don't have any money. The people in the country have the money, and the only way the government gets money is by taxing its citizens or borrowing from an international bank. To rebuild the British fleet meant huge loans needed to be taken out. The Rothschild family owned oil production in France and the U.S. through their connections with Standard Oil, which is owned by John Rockefeller, who was in debt to the Rothschild family. Oil-powered ships were faster and more reliable, so change they must. Once the new British fleet was on the water, the government began looking for sources of oil so they could keep their ships at sea and keep their empire afloat. The Middle East was awash in oil, but it was also awash in people who didn't get along with each other. What to do? The usual solution was to start a war. Now Britain needed oil to keep these new ships afloat. They voted to buy 51% of an oil company as a good start. To meet the necessity of securing foreign sources of oil, puppet regimes would be established in countries like Persia, which later became Iran. Then there was that Turkish army, uh, Turkish empire that was very much in the way. Britain would have to do something about that as well. The Suez Canal ran right through a big part of the Turkish Empire. Astro-Hungary started a war with Serbia. France and Britain sided with Serbia. Then Germany gets into the fray by siding with Austria. Turkey gets drawn into things on the side of Austria and Germany. The next thing you know, we have World War I going on. When at long last Germany and all of its allies decided they'd had enough, the, re the Great Redesigning began. After the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, which was spearheaded by Woodrow Wilson, on June 28, 1919, and the map of Europe was redrawn by, who else? The winners. Astro-Hungary the Ottoman Empire, or Turkish Empire, were divided up to create a large number of small new countries in Eastern Europe. The small countries were less likely to start anything against powerhouses like Britain and France. Internally, these new countries tended to have substantial ethnic minorities which wished to, to unite with neighboring states where their ethnicity dominated. Britain got what they wanted, control of the Suez Canal and oil from the Middle East. And plans for World War II were being drawn up behind closed doors. Let's face it, there's a lot of money to be made during a war. And a world war means world-class financing. You never see any of the great powerhouses lose their money during any war. Someone has to supply the oil, the gunpowder, the law mater raw mater materials to make a good war even better. The Rothschilds came out on top of both world wars. As World War II was winding down, folks got to thinking they needed to do something right away to see to it these European countries that were awash in devastation then needed to be rebuilt and rebuilt immediately. A small group of international bankers got together 
to come up with plans to save Europe. Money was needed, so banks were asked for more money. Big banks became enormous banks. In 1954, the most powerful men in the world met under the invitation of the Dutch royal crown and the Rockefeller family. The meeting was held in the luxurious Hotel Bilderberg in a small Dutch town of Osterbeck. For an entire weekend, they debated the future of the world. When it was over, they decided to meet once every year to exchange ideas and analyze international affairs. They went by the name the Bilderberg Club. Since then, they've gathered yearly in luxurious hotels somewhere in the world. They plan on how to subversively and silently take over constitutional governments everywhere so they can achieve their goals. What is one of their goals? One world government, run exclusively by their hand-picked puppets and with the largest benefits going to themselves. Bilderberg founding members and for 30 years a steering committee member, Dennis Healy, said, To say we are striving for one world government is exaggerated but not wholly unfair. Those of us in Bilderberg felt we couldn't go on forever fighting one another for nothing and killing people and rendering millions homeless. Homeless people don't pay taxes. So we felt that a single community throughout the world would be a good thing. Never mind all the rest of the world who slaves all week and pay their taxes, which somehow vanishes into private banks all over Europe. A case in point, in 2011, the Federal Reserve Bank, which is in fact privately owned, secretly printed $1.1 trillion and electronically gave this gigantic bonanza to Europe's central banks and to number of banks in Germany, Italy, Spain, Great Britain, Belgium, Switzerland, France, Portugal, and elsewhere. Not loaned, gave. As in, here you go, see ya. No need to pay that back. We'll just get the U.S. taxpayers to pay this off. These European institutions, because of their greedy Ponzi schemes that had failed, were on rubbery last legs and the whole of Europe was about to go bankrupt. Well, our Federal Reserve came to the rescue with one Point one trillion dollar gift. The Fed chairman, Bed Bernanke, had publicly stated that to bail out Europe's banks, to recapitalize Europe's elitists, troubled governments, financial institutions, would be a violation of federal law. It will not be done, he said. And then he did it, and without a peep from our president or Congress. Now do you think that money was doled out to poor folks to buy food and clothing? I think not. It more than likely went to the big bankers who had lost rooms full of money by making bad investments. And we get stuck with the bill. What do we actually know about the Bilderberg Society? A few people have ever heard of them. And if you try to find them, you'll be told they don't exist. However, 
They are a group of international bankers and super-rich people who believe they should be allowed to rule the world. It's the golden rule. The guy with all the gold makes all the rules. You've heard of the New World Order or One World Government. Well, these are the people who are pushing this idea down people's throats. It's not for the good of man that they aspire to control the planet. It's because they think they were born into a higher social status and the planet belongs to them. Who has all the gold in the world? Oh, there's a huge building in Kentucky that's supposed to be filled with gold. The gold depository at Fort Knox. They say it's there. They say we own it, but we can't see it. We just have to take their word for it that all the gold is still there. In 1974, a clown show known as The Audit took place. A bunch of congressmen went and they peeked inside one vault and they said, look, gold. They weighed one bar and they said, see, it's all there. No one I know has ever seen the tons of gold we are supposed to have locked away inside the vaults. The folks running things base their claim on the fact that the seals are still in place. I remember watching the audit. They took the seals off the vault door without breaking it. The woman in charge said they needed to be careful so they could put the seal back in place when they were done. What kind of a seal on a door can be removed and then replaced without breaking it? That's not a seal. A lot of us believe all the gold we used to have is now in the hands of a bunch of international bankers who also want to own the world. Is there any gold at Fort Knox? In Europe, a bank was auditing some of their gold reserves. A sample was taken from one of the bars. They discovered the bar was gold-covered lead. This happened in Odessa. They found out some of the gold bars in their vaults were lead bars covered in gold. Do you think maybe some of the gold might not be gold as well in our banks? Up there in Fort Canox. Gold does strange things to people. It makes them act weird. How hard would it be for a group of international bankers to have slowly shipped tons of gold from the U.S. over the years that nobody has been allowed to see the gold we are supposed to own? The Bilderberg Group has way too much power and too much money. And they use their gold to get people to do their bidding. Once they have the politicians in their pockets, they can use their power to get these politicians to hand over anything that supposedly belongs to us. Just look how much it costs for a politician to run for office. They show it on the news all the time. This politician or that politician has raised millions of dollars. Did you send them that money? I sure the heck didn't. They're getting a lot of that money from foreign international bankers. And where do these international bankers get their money? From people like us, simply taking it out of our pockets in the form of taxes. The Bilderberg Group controls the IMF, 
the World Bank, the UN, all the European central banks. Every prominent European commissioner has at one time or another attended a Bilderberg meeting. Every NATO general secretary is a Bilderberger. You see where we're up against? Bilderberg, in fact, is a foreign policy arm of an all-powerful and completely unknown group called the Committee of 300, whose ancestors were the British East India Tea Company, whose main line of work didn't have anything to do with selling tea, but with moving drugs. Anytime somebody from England touts out the old we never had slaves, just ask them about the East India Tea Company. If you were living in India during the British colonial era, there was a chance that you and your family might just get shipped to Africa where you would be forced to work on a plantation. If you had the idea that you wanted some freedom and you took your family to anywhere other than where you were being assigned, the East India Tea Company Army would come and take you back to your proper place, or they'd kill you. The Tea Company had a bigger army than the British Empire. A tea company with its own army. Think about that for a second. Opium doesn't grow in China, and yet people accredit opium smoking with Chinese people. What do you suppose that is? In 1793, China was the home of a sophisticated culture and rich history. Among other remarkable achievements, China invented movable type, kites, toilet paper, flush toilets, and gunpowder. They perfected porcelain, silk, and tea production. In 1793 was the beginning of the end of the imperial China. Great Britain and other European nations desired silk, tea, and porcelain, and they wanted badly to trade with China. China wanted nothing to do with Europe and even refused to meet with European diplomats. Uh, finally, in 1793, a British diplomat was successful in reaching the Chinese court. He told the Chinese of the wonderful products of his country, convinced that once they really knew what Europe had to offer, they would quickly agree to engage in trade. China said, nah, don't need anything from you. They did agree to sell Europe their silk, tea, and porcelain, but they would buy nothing in return. Because Chinese goods were so sought after in Europe, an imbalance of trade developed. European gold and silver went to China for imported goods, but none returned because there was no possibility of exports. Well, this was unacceptable to the British, and they desperately looked for a solution. The solution to Britain's problem was opium. Although opium had been used in China for medical purposes for a long time, it had not been used as a recreational drug. It was too expensive and not easy to obtain because opium doesn't grow in China. The British brought in loads of opium to China in 1825, making the drug cheap and readily available. 
Soon, not surprisingly, the Chinese began to become addicted to the drug. The emperor outlawed the possession, use, and trade in opium, but the profits were so immense that an illegal trade quickly developed. The East India Tea Company supplied all the opium the Chinese wanted, and the Chinese government was unable to stop the smuggling. The balance of trade gradually reversed. 1839, the emperor ordered a stop to all opium trade. Well, the British were outraged, especially the East India Tea Company. The first opium war began. Faced with British industrial weaponry, it was no contest and British easily defeated the Chinese. As part of the settlement of the war, China was forced to agree to open up new ports for trade and to surrender the island of Hong Kong to British control for 99 years. A second opium war was launched by Britain in 1856, forcing more concessions on the Chinese. Among other humiliations, the Chinese government was no longer able to hold foreigners accountable under Chinese law for crimes committed in China. A never-weakening Chinese government also lost the support of its own people, who it could no longer protect. By 1911, the empire was dead and the republic was born in China, sort of. A puppet government was in charge and the people had absolutely no power. They just liked to call it the Republic of China. The entire world drug trade is now controlled by several members of the Committee of 300. The trade nets something like five to seven hundred billion dollars a year. Most of this dirty money is recycled through all the major stock markets and then pocketed as legitimate profit. Their goal is to rule the world. The doctrine of this group is not democracy or communism, but a form of fascism. The doctrine is totalitarian socialism. You must begin to think correctly. The Illuminati, the Masons, and the Bilderberg Society are not communists, but there are some communist members of the secret societies. The very idea of a bunch of world bankers, few of whom are U.S. citizens, wanting to decide who will be our president doesn't sit well with me. These folks have come to the conclusion that not only do they want all the money in the world, they want all the power as well. Anytime you hear of a decision being made that just doesn't sound good for our country, ask yourself who is really making these decisions. Just pretend for a second there's an election coming up. How can you tell which candidate is under the control of the puppet masters? Simple, just watch the news. The news agencies are mostly under the control of just a few people. So whichever candidate seems to be getting the most positive airtime, regardless of how bad their history is, is more than likely the puppet master's candidate. The worse this person is, the better, as far as the secret societies are concerned. If their candidate can't stand on their own, then the puppet masters have that candidate under their full control. 
They sure don't want somebody with no skeletons to hide gain, with no skeletons to hide gaining power in any country on this planet. That way they can pull the strings and get their puppets to dance to any tune they choose. Who would benefit under a one-world government? It sure wouldn't be us at the bottom of the pile. We'll be called on to pay for this, maybe with our lives, but the puppet masters will reap all of the benefits. Some would say these people are devil worshippers. Not so. If there was an altar set up in the heart of one of these secret societies' back rooms, well out of view of prying eyes, it would not have a statue of Beelzebub. No altar to the horned one would be seen. Sacrifices would not be made to the Dark Lord. No, if anything, there would be a giant mirror mounted in such a way as to show the image of the worshipper. The only thing these people really believe in is themselves. They were born to rule the world and Lord help anybody that gets in their way. Just because these folks are not worshipping Satan in any of his many disguises doesn't mean he's not pulling their strings. I just think the puppet masters are actually puppets as well. Now how can we fix this mess? How about looking at the folks who want to run our country and ask yourself, is this the right person for the job? Stop getting your information from news services that are all controlled by a few people who in turn are controlled by the international bankers. There are only a dozen companies that run every channel on TV, and guess who controls most of them? There are fewer than that many news agencies. They all get their marching orders from the same source, One World Government or New World Order. If you flip back and forth from the different channels watching the news, you'll hear all of the talking heads is saying the exact same thing, like they're reading the same script. Look at the people who want your vote and ask yourself, did this person have our best interests at heart, or is their allegiance to some international banker who's pulling their strings? Hope you enjoyed tonight's show. If you did, tell your friends. Let them listen as well. If you have any ideas for a show you'd like to hear in the future, you can drop me a note at strangethings at arcanasa.com. Until next week, this is Chris James. Are you, are you coming to the tree With a strong upper man, the same murder three Strange things that happen here, no stranger would it be If we met, admit Night in the hanging tree